this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball, as we are nearing the uh, the month, uh, I guess not birthday, but I guess not anniversary, the month marker of the start of the Minor League Baseball season. I don't know. Hi, I'm Tyler Mon, alongside Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra. Gentlemen, welcome. How are you? Good. Good. How are you, Tyler? Yeah, it's, it's funny to think like we are going into soon our second month of minor league baseball um which it's just nice to, like every day is, is new stuff to talk about but the fact that we have actually reached close to by the time you guys hear this is a second month of minor league baseball and everything seems to be proceeding as normal really um you know barring some some changes here and there but like fully back into the swing of things is a great feeling yeah it really is and it's uh it feels like it's been a thousand years since we've gotten to do it ben what's going on with you how's harry Harry's all right. Harry James Hill turned three months on uh, May 24th. Slightly so, older than the minor league baseball season. He is slightly older. Yeah. He's uh, one of the few things he's older than is the 2021 <laughs> minor league baseball. Season. Um, but he's doing all right. You know, I can do all the new dad talk, but he's smiling a lot. Big milestone the other day. He was like mimicking sounds I was making at him. Oh, oh that's cool. And one of the sounds was kind of like, uh, like, and he did it like he kind of did the and then like and like changed the pitch that's amazing like, yo yo <laughs> this kid is transmitting all of these uh these neurons in his brain correctly that's pretty cool yeah um, that's what it's about just seeing those brain those synapses fire or whatever it is <laughs> and baby's got these big heads so they might as well make use of those brains they're not too functional otherwise <laughs> We got a lot coming up for you on this week's episode of the show. We got a great conversation coming up uh, in just a little while with, I think we can safely call him newly minted uh, Beloit Snappers fan, Jim Dernick, who will join the show to talk about a really cool promotion that uh, his family was involved in with Beloit. Um, We'll chat about that here with Ben as we get closer and closer to it. But a bunch of stuff to cover. And as always, you can get in touch with the podcast, podcast at MILB.com. You can find us all on uh, Twitter as well. Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz, Sam Dykstra at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. Get in touch with your questions, your thoughts, your comments, all of that. And uh, let's get into it, Ben. Um, As we get into this season, there are so many things, obviously, that are different about the minor leagues. And in particular, there is one side of the minor league industry that's dealing with a ton of changes in 2021, and that is broadcasters. And you got to talk with uh, just one of the the greatest gentlemen in minor league baseball, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, who has uh, turned himself into a, a legend over his career with the Lansing Lugnuts and uh, just a, a great human being and a terrific broadcaster and a guy who, if I was going to start a minor league baseball franchise and you had to hire a broadcaster and somebody who was adaptable to things and very talented at what he does. Jesse would be very close to the top of the list, if not at the top of the list. And he, I feel like gives a very good perspective on what this year has been like for broadcasters, which is something you talked about with him because it's not just new structure. There's a new league. There's a new level. There's new affiliation for his team, the Lansing Lugnuts. There are also a lot of different restrictions on what broadcasters are and are not able to do this year. Um, And in his circumstance, that includes not being able to travel for road games. Uh, So he's been calling games off of monitors and all of that. Take us through um, what that whole conversation was like, and especially with the guy who may be best uh, equipped to deal with broadcasting games remotely. Jesse's kind of done that in a, a recreation old timey baseball sort of way as a promotional deal over the last several years. Um, what was your conversation like with him? 
Yeah, well, first of all, Lansing Lugnuts take notes um, or take note uh, when Tyler starts his minor league baseball franchise, which I believe is coming up pretty soon. Probably soon. As soon as I win the Powerball. Yeah, he's going to poach Jesse Goldberg's drafts from the Lugnuts and hire them. So um, I'm going to hire like a dozen broadcasters because they're (laughs) that I really love. (laughs) A front office of broadcasters. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, they're we've talked about it all through 2020 into 2021. How are things different? How are you adapting? How are you adjusting? And, uh, you know, hadn't really focused on broadcasters yet. And Tyler, as Tyler mentioned, Jesse Goldberg, Strassler, uh, with the lug nuts since 2009, uh, you know, a mentor to a lot of other broadcasters, really creative uh, guy. Um, I thought, you know, I'll check in with Jesse, you know, to get the perspective there. I feel like uh, he can kind of talk about what it's like and, you know, shed light on what the experience has been, not just for him, but, for a lot of broadcasters in this position, like a lot of things in minor league baseball, it's not a hundred percent across the board, everyone dealing with the exact same scenario, but the lug nuts, like a lot of teams, broadcasters are not traveling uh, right now, at least to start the season. They're not going on the road trips. And uh, that means when the team goes on a road trip, like the lug nuts did a 12 game series, a 12 game road trip with six games against uh, Dayton, six games against Fort Wayne, the lug nuts, the team of Jesse Goldberg, Strassler and Adam Jackson, they broadcast those games remotely. And, you know, we've, we've been accustomed to major league broadcasters doing that, doing that, especially last year in 2020. Of course, they still have their challenges, but, you know, you're dealing with more professional feeds and video and equipment across the board. So I was talking to Jesse about how he did it. And um, it's interesting just what you have to set up. You have both him and his partner have the MILB TV uh, broadcast feed of the game. They also have another screen with a full field view via Zoom that's provided by the actual home team. So, uh, you know, if they're playing Dayton, Dayton sends them a Zoom link that's just trained on the field so they can see all nine what's happening at once at all times. On top of that, they have the MILB TV feed. On top of that, you know, they have the um, game day, box score, play-by-play log. On top of that, you know, he's just doing all the things a minor league broadcaster does, you know, capturing video highlights, converting them into GIFs, checking his email to see who responded to the trivia questions, rosters taped to, you know, the tables in front of them and doing all of that when you're in a quiet, otherwise empty room and the game is taking place hundreds of miles away. So it obviously provides some pretty unique uh, challenges there, Uh, but they're getting it done. And, And it's not just the challenge right now for broadcasters of calling games at home when the team is away. It's also just how well you get to know the players. So much of what you can provide in terms of the color commentary is based on your knowledge of the players. Yes, you can interview them, but so much of that is incidental. And that's a point that Jesse made up. He said, yeah, brought up. He said, yes, we can schedule zoom interviews. Yes. I can get to know these guys through one-on-one talking remotely, you know, through our computer screens, like we are doing right now, but so much is just observing in the clubhouse in the batting cage, getting to know not just who these people are when they talk to me, but who they are when they deal with their teammates, the personality I can observe incidentally day to day, just being around the team. So that is lost as well. And, you know, the Jesse's a very uh, literate guy, eloquent guy. And, you know, he said, you know, I look at it as cooking, you know, in the past, I used to have access to a lot more ingredients. And now I have to make a meal from more limited ingredients, but how can I cook up something that's still tasty, that's still edible, that is still uh, something that looks good and that other people would want to share that meal with me. And uh, good metaphor, Jesse, and uh, enjoy putting that story together and uh, curious to, you know, hearing from other broadcasters about what their experience has been like. But I imagine uh, 
sort of this overview I'm talking about now and that Jesse provided is uh, certainly not unique just to him and to Lansing. Yeah, one thing I, I liked about this piece and about what you were just talking about, Ben, is how much you highlighted and Je through Jesse, really, um, or Jesse through you, how, you know, this is doable. It's it's about baseball. You're watching baseball. You're talking about baseball. You can do that. It always comes down to just the game. But this isn't this is or this isn't a perfect solution. Like this is far from what the norm should be um, going forward. And I know there's costs involved with sending broadcasters elsewhere and all that kind of thing. But did you get a sense of talking to Jesse, whether Lansing or broadly across minor league baseball, that this is just going to be a short term solution because of COVID? I think like a lot of things, it's just, you know, day to time, homestand at a time, away trip at a time, month at a time. You know, he's hoping that come June, you know, that, that the, the situation is reassessed and there might be some more uh, opportunities there. Uh, Sam, like you mentioned, yes, there were, you know, COVID restrictions put in place, um, you know, regarding broadcasters and their interactions with the team. But also, uh, as you mentioned, with 2020 being a year of pretty much no revenue for teams, in some cases going forward, even when restrictions are lifted, there could be issues with broadcasters traveling just for the attendant expense of that as well. And of course, that's on a team by team basis. Um, so I do, it, like a lot of things in minor league baseball, I think it'll take a long time to get to normal. And uh, I know you guys are on the same page with this, Tyler in particular as a broadcaster himself. But, you know, we believe that, um, yes, tough budget decisions have to be made, but having a broadcaster travel with the team it is such a crucial aspect of bringing the game to your fans and to not just your fans, but to minor league fans all across the country and um, really hope that they can be as fully operational as possible. And in the meantime, they improvise, you know, Jesse was saying like he, he had already pre-recorded crowd noise at a lug nuts game that he just had in his files. So he plays a bed of crowd noise from Lansing during these away games. And um, yeah, originally he did try to, uh, you know, make crack of the bat sounds and the sound of a ball pounding a mitt. But he said, you know what, trying to follow the play in real time, make sound effects, keep a conversational flow with my partner. It just got to be too much. So they still have the fake noise going, but uh, not, not a lot of the uh, sound effects he originally hoped to add because you just have to, after a certain point, realize what works for you and how much is too much. Yeah, it's certainly not an easy time, but um, it's a really interesting challenge for broadcasters. And I feel like we're kind of all of the same mindset to a degree this year that, well, it beats 2020. Um, and so a very cool story that is up on the site right now. Um, we also uh, got a look or getting a look. You got a chance to talk with one of the newest rivalry series in minor league baseball, which is the Durham Bulls and the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, two teams that were not even at the same level until 2021. Um, and now are getting a chance to kind of flex their muscles creatively against each other. They play 36 times this year. Is that right? Obviously the, uh, the pandemic and travel differences across the minor leagues and everything this year, so much is localized. Uh, those two teams will be sick of each other i would imagine by this time in september um, but tell us about this uh this conversation and this uh now system of rivalry reward slash discouragement between these two sides yeah i mean talk about zero to 60 or whatever analogy you want to use durham and jacksonville have never even been in the same league perhaps ever but if they ever have been you're going back decades so this is not a pre-existing rivalry and they are both now in the triple A East uh, Jacksonville, having moved up from double A where they were in the Southern league. Um, so this, these are two teams, Durham and Jacksonville that don't have a pre-existing history, but now they're in the same league. And because they're in the same division, 
And because travel is limited, they're, they've gone from playing each other literally never because they're not even in the same league to playing each other 36 times, which is just absurd. They're right now, as we speak, I believe in the midst of their second six game series of the season. And even when they complete that, they will only be a third of the way through the number of games they're playing against one another this season. So they decided to have some fun. They just announced the surf and turf rivalry series with, of course, the jumbo shrimp shrimp rep, uh, representing surf, the Durham Bulls representing turf, you know, a stake as it were. And we see a lot of teams do rivalry series. That's been a fairly common thing through the year. But a unique aspect of this is that whatever team loses this 36 game series, I don't know what will happen in the event of a tie. I'll have to look into this because I'm going to put an article together about it. But whoever wins this 36 game series, then the losing team will give away a T-shirt in 2022 that says we lost the surf and turf rivalry series to whatever team. So let's say Durham wins. Then in 2022, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp will have a night on their promotional calendar in which they will give away 500 T-shirts that say, we lost the 2021 Surf and Turf Rivalry Series to the Durham Bulls. So, uh, you know, the teams looked into it. I certainly couldn't find a precedent. Uh, first time ever that a rivalry series, I believe, has involved a giveaway um, by the losing team and a giveaway that is essentially making fun of the team that's actually giving the thing away. So it definitely adds a, another edge to the whole thing. And uh, hey, the front offices can't even control what happens on the field, but they can have some fun with it. And uh, this will give those 36 games a little more intrigue as the season goes on. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how is that going to work on a promotional calendar? Like, hey, show up to our park so you can get a shirt saying we're losers. <laughs> how is that going to work? Are they even going to put that on the promo calendar? Do you think? I don't, I'm sure this hasn't come up yet, but or is it just going to be, hey, you show up to a random Tuesday game in 2022. And by the way, we have shirts. We'll see how they play it. Yeah. Maybe they'll put that in extra small font on the promo calendar. or Maybe they won't even advertise at all. And the fans get a bonus. Like what? Okay. Like whatever. That's a funny thing about minor league promos in general that we talk about them all the time. You know, I stay immersed in that world, but the average fan going to the average game often has no idea that there's even a promo going on at all. And so a lot of the times the context is totally lost. So I'm sure you'll have a lot of confused fans being like, what is going on here? But Hey, on a certain level, that's nothing new in the world of minor league baseball. Yeah. Promos often, you know, get fans to attend and give them memories. But in a lot of cases, there's so many fans, so many games, people are going in cold and they just have to roll with just the absurdity that's going on. So this is just one more example of that. All right, Ben, we've got a very cool conversation with a, uh, a new Beloit fan. Tell us about what we're going to hear here after the break. Yeah, well, I think uh, we covered it pretty well in the interview, but we're talking to Jim Dernick, who was a participant in the Beloit Name the Night initiative that we talked about last week in which fans can buy per game naming rights to the Beloit Snappers home of Pullman Field. And uh, Jim Dernick, on behalf of his family, uh, named the ballpark in honor of his, of his late brother. And it served as a de facto post-COVID, or at least post the worst of COVID family reunion at the same time. So it was great to talk to Jim and talk about um, another example in which this promotion was utilized in a really creative way. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. 
So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Last week on the Show Before the Show podcast, we talked about the Beloit Snappers and their Name the Night initiative in which they're auctioning off one-night naming rights to their home of Pullman Field so fans can bid uh, starting at $500 to have the ballpark named uh, of their choosing. Uh, Really unique thing. Uh, Last week we talked about um, the individual who bought the naming rights for May 14th game, the Bob, a man named Bob Graff. Um, and that was a goofier, funny story. Uh, you know, he was just a minor league baseball fan who wanted to spend the night at the Bob. Uh, the night before that, however, um, there was a, the snappers played at Harry F. Dernick Jr. Memorial Stadium. And that was a tribute to Harry Dernick. And um, we have here Harry's brother, James Dernick to talk about how that came about and how the snappers came to play a night uh, at a ballpark named in his brother's honors. So uh, thank you for joining us, Jim. Well, thanks for having me. It was, it was a really unique opportunity um, that just presented itself through, through chance. Uh, I was in the car listening to MLB radio and uh, they had someone from the snappers on. uh, And just as I reached to change the channel, because why do I care about the Beloit snappers? I thought, you know, if someone from the Beloit Snappers is on MLB radio, he must have something interesting to say. So I hung in there and sure enough, um, he was talking about this promotion where you could name the ballpark for a night. And the first thing that entered my head was, wow, my brother Harry would have loved that. He was a marketing guy. And the second thought was, I got to name it after him. Um, so we, we got some family members that were available and uh, we all went to Beloit on May 13th um, for a really what turned out to be a really special night for us. And if you could tell us about uh, your brother a little bit, he worked in marketing and, um, you know, as you said, he, this is the kind of thing, the kind of idea that maybe that would have appealed to him in the sort of work he did professionally. And so it was a way to celebrate him with family at a baseball game, but it also spoke to his interests and uh, you know, the way he thought about the world. Is, is that kind of part of the appeal for you? Yeah, it really was. Um, Harry was, he was in marketing. Uh, he, he, he flew um, for the Air Force in Vietnam. When he came back, he went back to school. He got a master's degree and went to work for um, uh, Anheuser-Busch. Then he worked for Gallo Wines, again with Anheuser-Busch. And, and he moved his way up the ladder. Um, he was responsible for um, breaking um, Bud Light. Uh, I'm sorry, Bush, Bush beer first. And then... Uh, he went to the UK in, in the early 80s and was responsible for introducing Budweiser to Europe. Um, he left Budweiser sometime in the 80s, had an independent company of his own, um, and, but ended up being the uh, CEO for Red Bull. And when he joined Red Bull, they were selling about 3 million cans a year. By the time he was finished, they were selling 3 billion cans a year. Um, and it was sort of a street marketing approach um, 
that, that he fostered that led to that success, I think. And, and one thing you talked about, Jim, was just how many family members came together in Beloit to, to watch this game. How many people did you guys have go to this game? We So you get eight tickets um, when you name the night, and we used all eight of them. Um, Harry, just to sort of fill in the gaps, Harry passed away in November. Um, and because of COVID, you know, we weren't able to, it was, we weren't able to be there for the services. Um, we weren't able to be there with him um, prior to his passing. He had been diagnosed with cancer in May and, uh, and nobody could travel to the UK um, to see him. So this was the first opportunity family was going to have to get together to celebrate him and to grieve a little bit too. So we had um, his daughters, Molly, Emily and Kim from Texas, North Carolina and Ohio respectively. Um, me from Delaware, my brother Mike from Baltimore and my brother John from Florida. And uh, a cousin and his wife from the Chicago area also drove in. So that was our group. Um, it was a real emotional night. The people from the Snappers couldn't have been better. Um, great hospitality, great stadium and a great game. Yeah, and, and besides just signage and hearing your brother's name announced in this stadium in this way, um, what were you guys doing? Like, or what were what were some of the thoughts coming to mind? What were the memories you guys were sharing as the game went off? Game went on of, of your brother Harry. Well, the, you know, it, it really was, you know, it really was special. Every time the the announcer said, made reference to the stadium, he, he said my brother's name, and it was they did such a great job with it. It was seamless. You would have thought that it had been named Harry F. Darnick Jr. Memorial Stadium for, for a decade or more. Um, being together, you know, we were able to, to talk about um, all the great memories we had of Harry, um, the times we had spent together. We actually had been to Wisconsin before. Um, one of my uncles owned a, a resort on a lake in Webster. We'd go there every summer. Um, so those were some of the memories we shared. We'd been through Beloit before. Um, it was just wonderful to be together again. You know, it was the first time we got to got family members together since, since, you know, Christmas of 2019. Jim, what did it mean? Um, you've been through Wisconsin before. I would imagine you had never been to a snappers game before. I had not. Okay. So to have kind of, um, you know, a blank canvas in that regard where you're celebrating your brother in a place where you haven't been and kind of everything is dedicated to that night and uh, his memory and the fact that you all get together. What what did that add to the experience, the, you know, the reality that you all get to be in a place and it's all centered around that and being able to remember your brother together? Well, not just that, but sort of the surrealistic absurdity of the whole thing that that we were in Beloit, Wisconsin at a Snappers game, you know, dedicated to my brother, he would have laughed his tail off. Um, he just would have thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, and, and we were sort of laughing at ourselves along with it. Um, sorry, the mailman's here. Um, it was, and like I said, the, the people from the Snappers couldn't have been better. They, the hospitality was amazing. They took us out on the field before the game so we could take pictures with the, with the banner in the outfield. Um, they did everything. And, you know, my niece Molly sang the national anthem. Um, my brother John threw out the first pitch. It was, it was like we took the joint over. It was really great. 
And that was going to be my next question is you are sharing something that is super emotional with a, a front office and organization and, you know, ultimately kind of a fan base um, that you haven't interacted with before and vice versa. Um, what was that like? I mean, in pouring out something so emotional, I would imagine with, with strangers probably forms a really interesting and cool bond. I mean, their reaction and kind of getting to share in your brother's memory. What was that, uh, that interplay like? Well, it was, it was really, um, they were very supportive. Uh, they were very welcoming um, from the, you know, I, I sent an email um, to them to let them know why we had chosen this name and, and to sort of give them in some insight into, into the backstory. And the response to that was just, again, a lot of support, a lot of caring. Um, the great front office great front office. You can see, you know, the, the really cool thing about the minor leagues is everybody's in the minor leagues, right? So the promotional people that are in there, the front office people, everybody's doing the same job that they think would be great to do at the major league level. So everyone from the mascot to the front office is sort of, you know, they're minor leaguers hoping to work their way up to the show too, most likely. Uh, but, and these folks were great. They were just tremendous. Yeah, and you mentioned, I think your term was sur surrealistic absurdity, and that is such a big part of the minor league experience and a lot of what we talk about. Uh, so to have just it being so absurd and so emotional at the same time, um, you know, probably you know, throwing out the first pitch, maybe participating in between inning games at the same time, seeing family members you haven't seen for such a long time. I imagine there was a kind of emotional whiplash and, you know, the serious and the heavy and the light and the goofy all at the same time. And in a lot of ways, that's uh, the minor league baseball dynamic as well. Yeah, it, and it didn't, you know, everything was in the moment um, because there were so many pieces to bring together so quickly. Everybody flew into Chicago um, that morning. We're all flying out the next day. Um, so those 24 hours were, it was a roller coaster and, and it just happened really quickly. We tried to be in the moment of it all and appreciate it, but it wasn't until, you know, I got to the airport the next day and had a chance to exhale because everybody had gotten there. We'd had the experience. We'd gotten that alive. Um, it, that's when the emotions hit, you know, and everything sort of washed over me as, as to what we had just done. Um, it was great. It was great. And listen, for any minor league team out there, this is a great promotion. This is a great way to get people involved and get them personally connected to your team. We have um, the Wilmington Blue Rocks here in Delaware. And we go to games there every summer. And the, the, the level of dedication that those offices have to entertaining you between innings and at the game, you know, from beginning to end is just, it's a great value. It's a great experience. And Jim, just as a way of getting to know Harry a little bit better, um, what do you think his reaction would have been had he walked in and seen his name on a stadium like that? Like I said, he, he would have just bellowed with laughter. He just, he would have thought it was the, the, the funniest thing ever to, to do that, not just to do this, but to do it in Beloit, Wisconsin, um, of all places. Harry, Harry was definitely a man of the world, um, you know, in connection, not just with his work, but with his family. Um, they traveled an awful lot. They went to a number of exotic, interesting places. Um, but he was just as a, at home, you know, in Beloit or Webster, um, small towns, uh, he, he just would have gotten such a kick out of the whole thing. And is this going to become the new Dernick family reunion to go to Beloit uh, games every summer? 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, they have a new stadium now, so or they're going to have a new stadium. So maybe we used to, um, the, the five brothers used to meet in Chicago every year for opening day at Wrigley. And, uh, and we hit a stretch where we got snowed out uh, a couple of three years in a row. And at that point, we looked at each other and said, screw this, let's come back in July. Well, it sounds like, I guess, going into a situation like this, you don't know what to expect, but it sounds like it met your expectations and more and um, turned into something that the whole family can talk about for a, for a long period of time. And, you know, we appreciate you coming on the show and um, sharing memories of your brother, Harry, and, uh, you know, filling us in on a very unique minor league baseball promotion. And like you said, uh, hope to see more teams do this. It's a little tough because some teams already have the corporate naming rights and it's probably not in the contract. They can change that, but for the ones who can, it's a, it's a great idea. And, um, you know, I appreciate your time and um, yeah, hope you can make it to a new game, uh, a game at the new ballpark in Beloit and keep this going. Yeah. Thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Beloit was well, it turned out to be a great surprise. Um, what a great city and great team. Great people. Huge thanks to Jim Dernick for joining the show uh, in memory of his brother and for the night that he and his family got to experience in memory of his brother in Beloit. Sam actually asked a great question after we got done about whether or not uh, Jim would have even heard or known about this had he not been listening to uh, MLB Network Radio on that day. And uh, Jim had a very cool answer to that. Yeah, yeah. And I was kicking myself. I was like, of course, I'd ask this after the recording. That's that's a sign of a good journalist. Um, but no, I, when I asked him that, he was like, yeah, it's kind of like Harry produced the whole thing. Like I was supposed to hear that. And it happened at a time when, um, you know, Jim was saying like at time of COVID, he's been working from home. He doesn't travel out much. So the fact that it, he was in his car in the first place was kind of a odd thing for him at the time. And the fact that he was there during that interview with Beloit on MLB radio and et cetera, et cetera, it was really serendipitous. So um, really cool. I'm, I've been gets all the credit for that one and scheduling and, and getting Jim on the show, but it, it really spoke to one of the special moments of minor league baseball, especially this year and what could have been a weird year, but it, it opens up opportunities like this one. Yeah. Those are the things that we have really missed about minor league baseball. And uh, we have also missed the baseball stuff and we get a chance to talk about that in three strikes in this week's episode of the show before the show. And we are going to dive in with some of the breakout players of the first month of the minor league baseball season. We've heard names that you would kind of expect to have been fantastic early on in the season. We've also heard some names that have, I don't want to say come out of nowhere, but you look at somebody like Rowan Contreras of the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, who's not the highest rated among their prospects. He's been a star so far this year for AA Altoona. Nick Prado is one of those guys uh, in the Royals system who's been fantastic. Sam, who has stood out to you as uh, some of the breakout names in May so far? Yeah, I, I'll start with Prado, um, who you just mentioned there, Tyler, because coming into the year, um, I, I was writing up a little bit about the Royals system, studying them, getting into the weeds with them. If you remember 2019 with Nick Prado, he was on a Wilmington team where a lot of their best hitters really struggled all year long. Don't know what went on there, but it, it was a time in which we were really down on a lot of the Royals hitters because of what they were doing. At Wilmington, Wilmington is a pitcher's park that could have explained it partly, but Nick Prado, a former first round pick, uh, plays first base, is going to need to hit. He's a really special defender at first base, but he's going to need to hit to push the envelope. And, you know, talking to members of the Royals front office, a lot of what I heard was Nick Prado started to make some adjustments in 2020 uh, that were really starting to showcase some power. And he carried that into the spring. And now we're starting to see it here 
uh, at double A Northwest Arkansas as well. He's got six homers and 80 plate appearances. He's batting 311. He's slugging 705. He's got an OPS above 1100. Um, so all those adjustments that we heard from him in terms of hitting the ball harder, elevating it a little bit more, um, trying to make the most of his power tool are coming to fruition, which is huge. And we could be talking about him as a top 100 prospect by the middle of the season if this carries, you know, in June, July, et cetera. Um, but Nick Prado always had the potential to be a special hitter. Again, first round pick at first base. If that was going to happen, he was going to need to hit. And he's starting to do that for sure. Uh, Royenzi Contreras, who you mentioned, Tyler there as well, uh, pitching at double A Altoona in the Pirate system, came over from the Yankees system. Uh, he's currently ranked number 20 for the Pirates. He was one of the arms in a very deep system for arms with the Yankees, uh, especially when it came to right-handed pitching. Uh, a little bit more chance to, to be himself and, and um, stand out a little bit more with the Pirates. Obviously, they're rebuilding themselves right now. They can use all the help they can get. Uh, but right now, through 21 and two-thirds innings, he struck out 34 batters. Uh, he's got a 2.08 ERA. He's got a 0.78 whip. Um, doing all the things that start to pick up on our radars here uh, for Anzi Kringle. Contreras. So we're going to be keeping a close eye on him. If he can continue to rack up the strikeouts, he's only 21 years old. Um, so the pieces are there uh, and maybe the pirates were able to unlock something that the Yankees weren't able to do so far. Uh, one other name I want to throw out real quick um, to somebody who's been on the show in the past, um, somebody who's breaking into top 100 territory himself. Wouldn't exactly call it a breakout per se, because again, first round pick hasn't had a chance to really showcase his stuff in the minors until this year, but that's Gunnar Henderson uh, in the Orioles system, only 19 playing at low A right now. He's got five homers and 76 plate appearances, batting 318, 395 OBP, slugging 621, so his OPS is above 1,000. Uh, Henderson is somebody we thought could always be an above-average hitter and a showcase above-average power. From the videos I've watched, he's especially been good hitting the ball the opposite way. Some of the homers he's hit have gone the opposite way. Seems to have no problem driving it that way. Uh, really fascinating to see him take off as well. And again, he, he was right on the cusp of, of being top 100. But if he continues to put together performances like he has so far in this first month, he'd be climbing top 75 uh, you know, by midseason. And that's exactly what the Orioles need right now. They need guys who are already good draft picks or already you guys they brought in to take that next jump. And if they do that, then, you know, we could be talking about the Orioles being a homegrown contender in a year or two. Strike two this week, we have a top 100 prospect set to make his major league debut. Alec Manoa, who is the number 97 overall prospect in baseball in the Toronto Blue Jays organization, uh, which is a system that, has gotten better and better, it seems like, somehow, even after graduating guys like Vlad Guerrero Jr. and uh, Bo Bichette and uh, all the talent that has come through there. They're still stacked uh, with five guys in the top 100. Alec Manoa, so far this season, three starts for AAA Buffalo, uh, an ERA of 0.50, 18 innings pitch, 27 strikeouts against three walks. Opponents are hitting 119 against him. His whip is 0.56. He's been ridiculous. And this is a guy who had not pitched above the Class A short season level, a level that no longer exists, of course, in the affiliated minor leagues uh, prior to this season. He pitched for Vancouver in 2019, which was his draft year when he went 11th overall to the Blue Jays uh, out of West Virginia. What do we expect out of Alec Manoa in his major league debut, Sam? Yeah, so it, 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 he's another one who it's, it's really been fascinating to see them 
get aggressive with him. And, it, and it's a opportunity to remind folks, trust what the teams are doing. Like if teams are getting aggressive with a player and you'd be like, Oh, I, that's faster than I would have thought. They know the player better than we do. So the fact that they started Alec Manoa at triple a in what is ostensibly his first minor first full minor league season at the very least uh, was certainly telling came out of the gate firing when he went exactly six innings in all three of his starts with Buffalo struck out 10 or more in two of those three starts. Um, what you can expect to see is a, is kind of a guy who's going to really get aggressive on the mound. He has no issue throwing in the strike zone, at least so far uh, in the minor leagues and in the pros. Uh, his best pitch is probably his fastball. He's usually around 92, 96. He touched as high as 97. He can maybe dial it up to 98 in, in shorter stints. Um, but the fastball is his best pitch. The slider is also above average, can be plus um, with the way he can kind of back foot it and uh, get guys to miss both righties and lefties. Uh, I know lefties had some issues with him as well uh, during his brief time at, at AAA. The, the thing to really follow is the changeup. And we say this so often with guys for obvious reasons, but if he's going to be a starter, he's going to probably need that third pitch. And it was something he didn't need a whole lot of uh, during his time at West Virginia uh, when, you know, before he was drafted 11th overall in 2019, how much he's going to use it against major leaguers. If it's his third pitch right now, keep a close eye on that. By the time you guys hear this, his first start will already have happened, but for the Blue Jays who have called him up at this point, we fully expect him to be with the club for a while. Uh, they need all hands on deck, really, if they're going to compete with the Rays, the Red Sox, and the Yankees in what is increasingly a crowded day, at least. Um, but with it, Alec Manoa, expect somebody who isn't afraid. He's already said this. He had a press conference this week. He said, as long as the mound is 60 feet, six inches away from home plate, I've got a chance. Um, so I'm going to be the same guy I, I always have been kind of an uber, uber confident pitcher at every level he's pitched. He's the second 2019 pick uh, to make the major leagues. Andrew Vaughn was the first one. Uh, he's the first pitcher then uh, to make it from that draft class. And again, that's just because of how aggressive he is. And I think aggression certainly helps at, at the minor league level. What happens when you go against major leaguers who might be willing to just sit on the fastball and wait for it. Um, and attack it, the velocity isn't going to scare them away as much. We'll have to wait and see on that. But certainly a sign, again, if we're talking about trusting the team, if the Blue Jays are willing to bring up a 23-year-old this quick, considering he doesn't even have 40 innings of minor league experience, it tells you how ready they believe he is, and we'll find that out for ourselves very shortly. And strike three this week. We are uh, just five days away from the opener of the America's Olympic qualifier for the 2020, now 2021 Tokyo Games, uh, which are scheduled to start coming up here in a couple of months. Uh, there are two baseball spots still to be determined. One of those will be finalized uh, by June 6th in the close of the America's uh, June 5th, rather in the close of the America's qualifier USA baseball announced its roster, a 28 man group that'll need to be whittled down to 26 by the 30th of May, the day before the United States will open play against Nicaragua uh, in Port St. Lucie, Florida, at the spring training home of the New York Mets. Four top prospects are on this list um, led by Matthew Libertor and Tristan Cassis of the St. Louis Cardinals and the Boston Red Sox, two guys who were actually teammates for USA. USA baseball uh, just a few years ago. 
four years ago to be exact in the 2017 U18 Baseball World Cup. Um, also among the top 100 group are uh, the arms from the Toronto Blue Jays organization in Simeon Wood Richardson, Woods Richardson and the outfielder from the Boston Red Sox system in Jaron Duran, uh, an organizational teammate of Tristan Cassis. This is a very interesting group because you've got four top 100 guys. Um, Nick Allen is also in there, the third ranked A's prospect, the middle infielder. Um, there are also a lot of veterans, a lot of free agent guys uh, who, you know, John Jay, Edwin Jackson, Matt Kemp, Matt Weeders, um, a very interesting mix, but four top 100 guys on this roster. Pretty exciting. Yeah. And one other name we should shout out to is Marlins minor leaguer, Eddie Alvarez. Right. Right. Uh, who a already has Olympian. Right. He has a silver medal himself as a short track speed skater um, who I believe we've talked before on the show. Tyler, you've written about him. I've written about him, but it's cool to see him in red, white and blue again. Uh, competing for an Olympic spot. So it's a really fun roster, like you said, just because of that young talent, that actual prospect talent, something for us to sink our teeth into. There have been cross Olympic Olympic Olympians, I believe summer and winter, but I can't imagine there's anybody who's ever done anything as weird as being a short track speed skater. And then on a baseball team in the winter and summer Olympics. Yeah. Who uh, was it? Lolo Jones. What was her name? The the former sprinter uh, who was also part of luge, I believe. Yes. Yes, she uh, was a bobsledder, Lolo Jones, who also right. uh, was, uh, I think she did hurdles. Hurdles. I want to say in the I, summer games. Not only did I screw up her summer sport, I screwed up her winter sport. I couldn't even hurdles. remember her name. If you would have said like, oh, remember the, the one who did hurdles in the bobsled? I would have been like, ah, oh, yes, I do. But I wouldn't have uh, remembered right off the top of my head. Lolo Jones, I forgot. But, he, but even that, it's, again, it's something like it, being a fast runner, is what you need in both of those things. You need powerful legs. Adi Alvarez is a fast runner. That's yeah. why he's climbed as high as AAA in minor league baseball. But you also have to and made hit. his big league debut last year. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you have to swing a bat and field and throw and do all these other things in baseball that you don't have to do in short track speed skating. So one of the crazy athletic stories of the last decade for sure to, to see him here. Um, but yeah, I think beyond just the opportunity to represent the country and compete for a spot in the Olympics in Tokyo, in Tokyo. Uh, I think this is going to be huge for these guys just to be around guys. Like you mentioned, Matt Weeders or Matt Kemp or Homer Bailey, um, you know, getting more exposure to veteran players. Maybe they can tip you off to a pitch or see something differently that somebody in your organization hasn't uh, and just competing in big games. I mean, minor league games are huge. It's great to be in that competitive environment, but to play in a stage where like, Hey, this, matters whether your country goes to the Olympics or not in your favorite sport. Uh, That's as big for development as anything else. So credit to the Red Sox, the Cardinals, the Blue Jays, the A's, like you mentioned with with Nick Allen, um, the Royals for sending Jonathan Bolin. Yeah. Uh, You know, like they could have said, hey, no, we want to keep you here. If anything happens, we're worried about it. We want you in-house. We're not letting you go. I don't have any inside info here, but for all we know, that could have happened with other, other players. Um, but for those clubs to send these guys and say, Hey, look, this is actually going to probably be better for you. And I know the Red Sox are also doing that with Jeter Downs. Uh, he's going to be representing Columbia, uh, in this qualifier. So it's really cool. Tyler, you're going to be 
participating this in your own way? What are you looking forward to most about this? Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, when you listen to an NPR story and they're reporting on, you know, the new electric F-150 and they're like, we should disclose that Ford is a financial sponsor, (laughs) a financial supporter of NPR. Yeah, I'll be broadcasting uh, these games and uh, they will be available on ESPN+. Plus. I believe some of the uh, USA Baseball games may get picked up for ESPN2, that type of thing. Uh, But I'll be there. I'm headed to Florida on Saturday, which will be my first time on a plane since that day uh since the day that uh spring training shut down and and everything else um but that all of that aside uh i'm just very excited to see this was i mean i was two days away from leaving for arizona for the originally scheduled iteration of this qualifier back in march of 2020 um, was going to broadcast that was also going to cover spring training for uh, for milb.com so to be doing this now I'm just excited to get back to a ballpark watch live baseball um, and to do it in a way where the international game has been on pause essentially since November of 2019 now all of a sudden you jump right back in and there are eight teams with one Olympic ticket on the line um, the second and third place finishers from this qualifier will move on to the final global qualifier, which is scheduled for, we believe, later in June. They haven't uh, confirmed dates yet, but that actually had to be moved from Taiwan to Mexico due to the, the accelerating uh, COVID situation in Taiwan and a travel shutdown there. Um, there are some questions as to who all is going to be sending teams to that final qualifier, but we know that these eight teams will be there for the America's qualifier. And yeah, I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, what this roster looks like for the United States in terms of the mix between the prospect guys and the veteran guys. I'm also really excited to see some of these other rosters. The Dominican Republic has loaded up with guys like Jose Bautista and Melky Cabrera. There are a lot of major league veterans on that group. Um, and Nicaragua is bringing a team that's comprised almost entirely of uh, players out of its own domestic professional league, along with some prospects. I think they have five uh, prospects who were signed to affiliated uh, organizations as well. So there are some really interesting constructed rosters uh, among the eight that are in this uh, this qualifier. The United States will be in group A, which is kind of quote unquote, the group of death. If you can have one of those out of two groups, uh, it's the US, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic and uh, Nicaragua. Puerto Rico is kind of an interesting one as well, because you've got guys who are on that roster um, who, you know, in other competitions may have been playing for the United States uh, and vice versa, I guess, because you've got Jaron Duran who's on the US roster who played for Puerto Rico in the Caribbean series this year. Now that's a different situation because that's just the champion of the, the winter league moves on. So your, uh, your imported players move on as well um, to, to play in the Caribbean series, but that's kind of cool that Jaron Duran was just a couple of months ago playing in a, a Puerto Rico uniform. Now he'll be playing for the United States. Um, but there are a lot of major leaguers who are on that group as well. Uh, the, the Puerto Rico roster features Noel Cuevas, Ozzy Martinez, uh, Ray Navarro is on that team. Yvonne De Jesus is on that team. So there are basically every different way you could try to construct a roster for a qualifier like this. A country has done that Venezuela's team Anibal Sanchez will pitch for that squad. Um, Um, There are a lot of really interesting groups coming in and, you know, kind of the knock on some of these international competitions sometimes is, well, look at these rosters. It's not the best of the best because it's the middle of the season. Um, And that may be true, especially in a year like this, when organizations really want to just keep everything as contained as possible and, um, you know, keep guys on their developmental track in the minor leagues and all of that. But I think it's really cool that a lot of major league organizations, you mentioned the Red Sox, kudos to them for letting multiple ranked prospects go play in a qualifier like this uh, because it gets them into a different 
realm of baseball competition. And I know, you know, talking with player development people in the past, there are a lot of player development people who feel really strongly about letting their players go do the international thing because it provides a dimension for them that you can't get just playing in regular season games, whether it's in, uh, you know, the minor leagues or, or making the climb to the major leagues, all of that. One thing that I do think is really cool is Matthew Liebertor and Tristan Cassis getting to team up again for USA baseball four years after winning a world cup title with the U18 squad. And it's kind of crazy to me to think about those guys who were high schoolers four years ago. And now, Oh, now you're on the the professional national team. Um, but two extremely talented players and, you know, guys who they're the young guys, but they could provide a little bit of, uh, of the conversation as to what it means to be in these international game environments and how different it is facing a team uh, with the style of, you know, Colombia versus Cuba versus whoever. Uh, and so that I think will be really cool as well, but really excited to get it going. We've got games at one and seven Eastern for the first uh, three days, I believe, of the tournament from St. Lucie, uh, the home of the Mets, and also from the ballpark of the West Palm Beaches, uh, spring training home of the Astros and Nationals. And uh, I'll be on the call for half of the games through that first round and then all of them through the uh, the super round and the final finisher atop the standings. We'll move on to the Olympic Games. That's to get started here in just a couple of months in Tokyo. And one other name we should throw out because – I'm not sure if you said it, but Julio Rodriguez will be. Yeah. Yeah. Did not mention Julio. Julio Y. Rodriguez, the Seattle Mariners, uh, number two prospect, the stud who is on the, uh, the DR roster. Yeah. I can't believe I neglected to mention him. I'm still just so blown away looking at that Dominican Republic roster and seeing all these former major leaguers. And yeah, the best guy on the field for the DR could well be Julio Rodriguez, who has been fantastic in his start to the season uh, at the high A level. And so, yeah, we'll get a chance to see him as well, which will be super fun. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm going to be tuned into as many games as I can get um, just to see how these guys react and also to hear your glorious voice oh, even more, Tyler. I paid Sam to say that. <laughs> I paid him a very small amount of money. Uh, so that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. We'll be back to wrap it up coming up next. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One is an actual phantom, the others are figments of my imagination. In last week's segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Goldsboro Posh Steppers. B. The Calumet Aristocrats. C. The Madison Millionaires. Well, you can bet your bottom dollar that B, the Calumet Aristocrats, had a rich history. With the name turning up like a gold coin throughout the first two and a half decades of the 20th C. If you don't know where the Aristocrats played, you haven't met Calumet. (laughs) This Michigan locale, current population 726, was once nicknamed Coppertown, USA. That had nothing to do with the local constabulary and everything to do with the area's abundance of a certain ductile metal. 
Calumet was therefore home to many a copper miner who loved their hometown minor league baseball team. <laughs> the aristocrats, upper crust of the Upper Peninsula. It was in 1905 and 1906 that the aristocrats really got their money's worth. In 05, they were the class of the Copper Country Sioux League, looking down their noses at the entire circuit with a 61 and 36 record. They sunk the Lake Linden Lakers, were daddy to the Hancock Infants, and shoes to the Sioux St. Marie Sioux. In assessing the aristocrats' gains, it's impossible to discount the contributions of Paul Grimes. No silver spoon grape-gobbling layabout, Grimes, grimy to his friends, no doubt, Hi, grimy old buddy, was an aristocrat with true grit. The smart money says he silenced the infants with a no-hitter on August 4 of 06, and the Winnipeg Tribune declared later that month that his labors had been of the highest caliber for the last two seasons. In 07, a merger between the Copper Country Sioux League and the Northern League did nothing to upend the aristocrats' ownership of the competition. But in 08, the previously loaded aristocrats were filthy and stinking, but not rich, posting a poor 34-65 and 65 record. The Calumet Club was stripped of its nobility with the Northern League reform of 09. And that is the dime on the aristocrats. Cash in on your brains by answering this week's question. Which of the following geological-themed teams were at one point the bedrock of the miners? A. The Mount Airy Graniteers B. The Allegheny Plateaus C. The Silver City Spelunkers Aim high and see your way clear to the answer. Better yet, tune into next week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is in a heated argument with Teddy Roosevelt, and the tavern's last pickle is at stake. Saying goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is your place to catch on the MILB TV system. Sam, what are you watching on MILB.TV this week? Yeah, this one, uh, I might actually try to go to one of the games myself, but uh, any of you who are not in Kings County, New York, and who can't get uh, down to Coney Island should tune in for Aberdeen and Brooklyn. Uh, big news for Brooklyn, the Cyclones this week. Francisco Alvarez, Mets top prospect, promoted from St. Lucie to Brooklyn. Um, so he's made his high A debut. He just did that uh, on Tuesday. He got off to a roaring start at St. Lucie. I think by the time he had been promoted, he was leading all of minor league baseball and on base percentage. I'm um, just working with arms, improving his defensive side of the game because we think he could be the best pure hitter in the Mets system, barring position. Like, doesn't even matter. The fact that he's doing that as a catcher is huge. Uh, I think. If he continues down this road, he could be the number two catching prospect in all of baseball by the end of the year behind only Adley Rutschman. And who knows, uh, maybe Adley Rutschman graduates, gets up in the second half, uh, but we'll see and keep an eye on that for sure. But uh, yeah, so th like that, that alone is, is going to be big because he's now in a lineup with Ronnie Mauricio and Brett Beatty. Um, that's a fearsome threesome. Uh, it's too bad Matt Allen has undergone Tommy John surgery. Otherwise, that Brooklyn roster would be even more loaded. Uh, but also, Aberdeen has currently Grayson Rodriguez, who is the top pitching prospect in the Baltimore Orioles system. 
I think he's slated if they continue down the path that they've been going with him, they haven't announced probables yet, but if they continue down the path, they'll be pitching either Thursday or Friday in Brooklyn. So no matter what, you're going to want to tune in to watch that. Brett Beatty, Ronnie Mauricio, Francisco Alvarez against Grayson Rodriguez will be huge. A lot of fun. Uh, be sure to watch that or go to the game if, if you get a chance, but MILB TV will have you covered for sure. Uh, Tyler, what are you watching? Yeah, you got an East Coast game uh, for viewers out East. If you're a West Coast person uh, or at least a mountain slash Pacific time zone person or just somebody out East who stays up late, uh, the Tacoma Rainiers on the road taking on the Reno Aces. Taylor Trammell sent down from Seattle to Tacoma has been just on fire in his start. Uh, to his time at AAA Tacoma. We mentioned that last week, um, but Taylor Trammell being in uh, a circumstance where the Mariners told him, you know, kind of focus on how you handle off-speed pitches, all that type of stuff. Seems like he is surging in that regard. Uh, and if the Mariners can get some offensive help, obviously a team that's been no hit a couple of times already this season, they would love that. Uh, so that is where Tacoma and Taylor Trammell will be this week taking on the Reno aces in the biggest little city in the world. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks for tuning in. You can get in touch with this podcast at MILB.com. You can find us on Twitter as well. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week. We'll be right back.